Hello and welcome back to Equity, a podcast about the business of startups where we unpack the numbers and nuance behind the headlines. I'm Natasha Mascarenas and joining me is senior tech crunch reporter on fintech, Marianne Azevedo. How's it going, Marianne? I've heard you had a super not dramatic or frustrating week this week with <laughs> all the wonderful startups in the fintech. I think world. I jinxed myself last week because I was all upbeat and peppy and like this week I've been all grumpy, but it's all good. It's all good. I'm still optimistic in general. How are you? I'm good. I mean, obviously, at, right as we were about to record the pod, Stripe announced that it's eyeing this IPO window. So a little bit frazzled, but let's see what we can learn. Maybe by the end of the recording, we'll get a comment. Hopefully. <laughs> we are also joined by the inimitable senior tech crunch reporter on venture capital, Rebecca Skutak. How's it going, Becca? Good, good. How are you guys? I'm it. I'm okay. I'm I'm medium. I'm going to be honest. <laughs> I feel like um, it's still New Year technically. So I think we should all keep the high energy and we can all start being grumpy starting February 1st, if that's cool. Yeah. And I think honestly, recording this every week really always boosts my mood. It like always makes me in a better mood. So ready for this. Heck yeah. Well, we have a lot to get to today. Our deals of the week are going to touch on Strava, Wasted, and Always. Then we're going to get into three themes. First, Google's antitrust lawsuit and the latest. Then get into recruitment and the hiring response, kind of switching up from our usual layoff coverage to talking about some of the positives and questions around those roles. And we're going to end with femtech trends in 2022 and what that means for 2023. But let's start with Strava's latest acquisition, Marianne. I think we were all surprised to see Strava be in a headline this week. Yeah, yeah. This is really interesting. So Strava's this activity tracking and I guess social community app that apparently 100 million people around the world use, although we're not sure how many of them are actually paid users. But it's a really interesting company, been around for 13, 14 years now, and they've acquired FatMap, which what a name, the company, right? FatMap. It's a European startup or company that's built like 3D global map for the great outdoors. I was fascinated by this for a few reasons. I'm not a huge outdoorsy person. Person, but we did recently venture into hiking into some trails oh. here in Austin. And I was thinking, wow, yeah, like how cool would it be to have an app like that that really kind of just helps you, you know, get a real feel for where you are, assuming you can get a signal, right? But I just think it's an interesting concept. And also, there was an actor recently, um, was it Sands? I, I don't remember his name exactly, but I think he got lost hiking or something. And so one of my first thoughts was, would this app have helped this? actor like would he be not missing if he were using fat map so anyway i mean it's interesting to see an MA in the space you know i think it'll be interesting as well to see how strava incorporates the technology yeah. into its own app or if it's just going to operate independently or what totally we don't know how much the acquisition was for or else we could also say it was a, not just a natural deal but actually a good deal but fat map has raised around 30 million from our notes and strava has raised around 150 million in funding from investors including sequoia so definitely has the money to spend. But I agree with you, Marianne, like I'm a Strava user for my runs, but a lot of my friends in California are starting to like prepare for ski season or already part of it. And like, they're always looking for better apps to track it and, and see how crazy they're about to be. So <laughs> yeah, it just felt like a nice, like cute story to pay attention to. Yeah. I don't know, Becca, I'm curious what you think. Yeah. And I know we talked about this a little bit on the prep call, but Strava, like you said, Natasha, I know people who use it, especially for planning runs, but I like forget that they're a startup because I you don't hear about them that often. But then this year, it's like we're hearing about them all the time. 
They've had like a lot of news this year and really interesting developments, which is fun for a company that's been around for that long and has like raised this much capital and still doing well. So I don't know. I just this just struck me as like, oh, this is great. Just great overall sign for the industry and just nice to see. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> we just didn't hear about Strava for a long time. So nice <laughs> to see them like still doing well and especially in the market of the over the last year. Right. Like we should maybe be paying more attention to them. I was thinking like maybe they have the Duolingo model where they only need to monetize like 2% of their user base because their current one is so big. But I mean, if anyone from Strava is listening, let us know. We'll end with Marion, if you can run through the latest on Strava's acquisition spree, because I was surprised to know that they've been active both with other companies and starting some as well. Yeah, yeah, that's right. And they're actually kind of quiet about it. It was what Paul wrote about it. So here. They acquired an injury prevention app called Recover Athletics last May, which is also fascinating to me. I love how like they're branching out into all sorts of different aspects of of being active, you know, like Mm -hmm. injury prevention is fascinating to me. Um, They also bought an online athlete community called ProKit in 2021, which they didn't talk about. But yeah, they've been around for a long time, but they're obviously still quietly expanding, quietly growing. They have raised plenty of money. So they, I guess they've held on to enough of it that they can afford these acquisitions. Yeah. Well, they're not sitting on their butts, unlike some people, which maybe the next startup wants to talk to. Rebecca, (laughs) tell us about the deal of the week that gave us that wonderful transition. Big yikes energy from our producer in the backstage. (laughs) Yeah. So what Natasha's referring to is a company called Wasted, which I have to say is a fantastic and straightforward startup name compared to some of the stuff we usually come across. But this is a company, they just raised a 7.5 million seed round. And this deal is interesting for a few reasons. What stands out the most is so Wasted is a company that's looking to transform urine and sort of the stuff that traditionally goes into the sewage system into fertilizer. Mm -hmm. So that stands out to me because as I spoke about a few episodes ago regarding to CES, I love these kind of climate change solutions where it's very simple for people to sort of make the switch. In this case, they want to expand into a full product line of things that can help capture this waste and turn fertilizer. But they're starting with porta potties, which is particularly interesting because they're saying it's easy to scale. You only need about one person can man like 200 porta potties, picking them up, dropping them off, driving them around. Mm -hmm. And then it's just like the consumers just use the bathroom like normal. So I kind of like these solutions where it's like, it's really easy. They're starting with construction sites, which always have porta potties. So it's like load them in, people use them as normal, but it makes a positive difference. Like those are all things I like to see. I mean, for sure, like big picture wise, I agree with you. Like this all sounds very positive and it's good for, I like that it's good for the environment. You're not having to do anything necessarily just go to the restroom like you normally would and you're going to indirectly, I guess, help the environment. But I have to confess, just as a person, I couldn't get past the gross factor. It was just hard for me to like envision this, like our waste being converted into something that will be used as fertilizer. I just, it was was hard. (laughs) Like I I have to like really understand the technology 
behind that and the removal of certain things in our waste and all of it. I don't know. It just sort of grossed me out. Honestly, call me bad. I don't know. It just grossed me out. No, I think like the, <laughs> like what was distracting for me during the story was like kind of the data that they have to think about, just data that we don't think about. I mean, it's a whole different frame of mind, right? And Marianne, to your point, I'm sure there's a lot of stuff that we don't know already happens that includes waste and fertilizer. If not, yes, with animals, but if not with humans, that I wouldn't be surprised <laughs> that there's precedent here. I'm guessing they didn't like completely invent this technology. Mm-mm. But yeah, I mean, I think in, in the story, it said how around 90% of the workers in the industry of construction sites are male. So a simple urinal piped into a separate tank will handle most of the urine diversion. And I was like, just like urine diversion in general and dealing with like the certain makeup of an industry. It's just like stuff we don't talk about. Much more complicated than SaaS software that's helping fintechs better figure out their customers. (laughs) But I did learn something, you know, like urine contains a lot of nitrogen, phosphorus and potassium. So, you know, like I really didn't know all that. So I learned a lot from the story and it was actually it was very well written and I think it's fascinating it's kind of one of those things that I I want to happen in the background I just don't necessarily want to know all the details behind right that's perfect though yeah (laughs) the other thing that stood out about this one too is that the company is based in Burlington Vermont which is fun because they raise from a lot of name brand seed farms. So not just say like local capital not that there's of course anything wrong with that but good to see sort of a startup really located outside of one of the hubs, making a positive difference and attracting VCs to a new neck of the woods. So a lot of good things from this one, even though, yeah, we don't need we don't need to go into the data. And I bless the people who do this the research <laughs> behind this stuff because I I wouldn't. So right? well I mean I don't know enough about Burlington Vermont's startup scene, but I imagine that like the whole wave around climate focused startups has helped because I imagine Burlington is just like being aware and better than the rest of us when it comes to sustainability. So maybe a stretch, but that's how I thought about it was like, oh, definitely the climate focus maybe helped them get the attention of these bigger VCs. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Also, Becca, are you drinking a Spindrift Tallboy? Like, is it a big Spindrift? Yes. I've never seen one of these. No, it's annoying. The bodega on the corner, they only, they have LaCroix, which I don't particularly like. Same. I Same. really like Spindrift, but they only carry Spindrift in the Tallboy cans. I've never seen them before either. Oh, and now I God. like buy them all the time. Okay. Well, everyone who's doing dry January or just like dry life in general or just like Spindrift like me, <laughs> that is a, a cheat if I've ever heard one. Because I always feel bad for drinking more than one. But if I got Tallboy, I would just feel okay. Oh, yeah. <laughs> That's crazy. Um, Okay, well, back to the show. The last deal of the week isn't as positive of one, but I think really important because we've talked about Allray's time and time again. It is a nonprofit all about increasing the representation of women in venture. And this week we learned that its CEO is stepping down less than a year after she first took the role, which makes her the second CEO to leave Allray's since it first started in 2017. And listen, like, we don't know exactly what is going on. I did end up talking to the team and I talked to Eileen Lee, who's on their board and is a founding member. And she mentioned that All Rise is in great hands and that they're going to continue to try and make improvements with the industry and they've made good progress. At the same time, I think it's just like hard to have an executive transition so fast. And it sounds like her interim CEO uh, was formerly her chief of staff that had been at the company for nine months. So another new face. We don't know how soon they're starting their CEO search, but I'll pause there because I would love to hear what both of you think about the shuffle at Allray's. Honestly, I mean, the first thing that I thought was it must be a really difficult job to be chief executive Mm -hmm. of an organization such as this one. Uh, We all know how like 
how little funding goes to women founders and just historically overlooked individuals, um, especially women founders who are, I guess, minority or just non-traditional founders in general. So I I just put myself in that position of like, damn, that's a hard Mm -hmm. job. So when you look at it from that perspective, it's not shocking that you would see probably more turnover at an organization such as this one than just any old other nonprofit. But at the same time, I can imagine it, it also, it's a little bit, feels a little bit disheartening, right? Because it's like, we want stability. We want someone who's like able to just keep fighting the fight. And I'm not saying that this CEO gave up at all. That's not what I'm implying. And I'm not trying to imply a negative negative reasons for her departure. But it, it's just, it feels a little bit symbolic of the overall struggles that female founders are facing these days in raising capital. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. I think you put that perfectly, Marianne. I was trying to get Mandela to tell me what she's doing next. And all I, I mean, I kind of joked with her. I was like, I hope you go back into entrepreneurship. And it sounds like she's not leaving tech It just sounds like she wants to work more on the field, I think, is how she put it in the post where she announced her move. But while there's so many different factors, you know, I was thinking about it and I was like, this is hard news. I wasn't pitched it. And I usually am pitch stuff around all rays. And I think because it's not the best news in the world. But I was like, I have to cover it because it very much feels like take away the focus. Um, If it was a nonprofit around tech, I would still cover it. If it was just a tech company, I would still cover it. So I always try and balance that um, in this world of venture and Becca, I imagine you've also been like dealing with that too of like with all the emerging fund managers and like there's like this weird like cheerleader pressure that I don't disagree with. I think it's a mm-hmm. good thing that journalists can sometimes feel pushed to do. But anyways, I could talk about that forever. <laughs> yeah, no, I definitely know what you mean. But I think what's interesting about it to me is that if these types of funds are looking for a seat at the table, like All Raise is focused on getting women the seat at the table in the industry, then you got to sit at the full table and sometimes that means news that's not necessarily going to make you look great. If it's still news, yeah. like we're going to cover it. And that kind of levels the playing field, which I think is what a lot of these organizations are going for. But then it somehow ends up getting just like a little twisted. And there's no malice here, of course. It just ends up getting a little twisted into thinking that negative news almost yeah. like goes against that. Right. Which it does. Like I feel like readers are also smart enough to know that a holistic picture is a better picture to read than the update that happens like once every few years that is like breathless reporting. So thinking about that for sure. Well, for what it's worth though, Natasha, I mean, your story was super straightforward and certainly didn't come across as negative. Thank you. In my opinion, but, but yeah, I mean, it's hard. And again, I think, I think there's this misconception out there that reporters are just sitting around like really hungry, <laughs> looking for some kind of, you know, controversy or negative stuff to, to cover or be sensationalistic. It's really, again, it's quite the opposite. It's not something we necessarily enjoy, you know, doing. We, we know we have to do it though. We have to be, we are a balanced journalist. We have to cover the the good, the not so good, and just, you know, just what's happening out there in general. Yeah. So that's our jobs, right? Yeah, right, exactly. Well, I'm happy always ended up commenting and hopefully can talk to Mandela soon and have an update, but we'll put a pause in the deals of the week for now and now pivot to something a little different for equity. We don't talk about the law as much as we should, but this week <laughs> Google got our attention because it has officially been sued by the U.S. government and eight states over its online advertising monopoly. I pushed for this in the script this week because I was kind of like, we don't always see, I mean, I think antitrust lawsuits are this evergreen thing that exists in tech and companies' lives. And we don't hear about it get to the stage too much. 
But for a little bit of background, the U.S. government is upset with Google because they think it has this position and and ownership over all the tools that publishers use to sell advertising opportunities. And it takes advantage of that upper hand, which basically, you know, I think in the story we described it as exclusionary conduct across the ad tech industry per the U.S. government. And the DOJ is arguing that Google has this like negative intent that unfairly favors its own products over other companies. I, I want general tech sentiment on it first, but I pause there. Is there anything I missed with exactly what the tension is over Google and the U.S.? I kind of wonder, though, how can they prove that it's favoring its own? From what I'm understanding, I think Google has been on this like acquisition spree that specifically is around its positioning and how it handles advertising. And so I'm sure it has data. And it, it, this is not a new tension that Google has thought about. I think this lawsuit first arose in 2020, but has been a long time coming for forever. But I think, yeah, it's just like the number of steps it's made and the number of companies it's bought in the space. I don't know. I feel Mm. like it's kind of like if I was a tech company or a startup even, seeing Google being looked at by the US and just being potentially looked at for antitrust, I'd be paying attention because one, it impacts me if I'm looking for Google ads, but also it impacts me if I end up ever getting into a space where I could be too big for my own good. Yeah. I mean, we've seen antitrust issues come up for sure in the past. I mean, the visa plaid deal fell apart yeah. for that very same reason. As you know, the DOJ like dug deeper into that, there was real concerns about monopolistic intentions on, on visas part. So I will be curious to see what happens because this could set a precedent, right? We'll be watching closely. And I know that Google seems to claim, oh, the digital ad market's super healthy. It's competitive. There's Meta, there's Amazon, there's Microsoft. But I, I don't know. I can, I guess a little bit where there's smoke, there's fire maybe here. Yeah. And I think especially looking at this through the lens of sort of Visa and Plaid, it kind of like begs the question then, if this were to go through, if the US government ends up being successful with this, does it kind of set a precedent that maybe some startups could become too big to even consider M&A as an exit opportunity anymore? If it's going to have to worry about antitrust and sort of who's buying them, will it come across this way? Will it come across yeah. that way? Would that push companies to like the size of Plaid to just take that off the table as a mm. potential exit opportunity mm-hmm. because of just some of what's going on with some of the larger companies in the space. But that's purely speculative. I don't know what you guys think of that. That is such a good question. I hadn't even thought of that. Mm -hmm. But it's like, well, we can't exit now. I guess, like, do we have to become a smaller company before we exit if we can't IPO? Like, what does that conversation even look like one day in the future? That's Yeah, that must be like a difficult spot to be in, right? If you're a company that's growing and you're, you know, you want to exit under some capacity, especially now with the public markets being so not closed, but, you know, being so hard like to to get into. And if you start to feel limited in terms of M&A, it's like, well, what options are there right yeah, now? Yeah, right. Mm-hmm. The only other like small bit that I was thinking through is how the iOS 14 update fits into all of this because I feel like that's like what all these founders tell me about how Google and Facebook advertising became super hard to do and mm-hmm. has completely disrupted the paid marketing attribution world. So they've gone to TikTok and they've gone to bigger companies, if you're a D2C company like Amazon, and kind of found space there. And so while I do think people are going to pay attention to Google, I was thinking like the iOS 14 update maybe takes a little bit of like the tech angle away from how much we mm. care about Google's advertising dominance, specifically in like the early stage tech world. Good point. 
Mm-hmm. Well, we do know that Google and Alphabet, its parent company, have had layoffs recently, and we're not going to talk about them more than that because our next theme is actually about the good news. Becca, you're talking about hiring. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for talking about hiring. <laughs> yes. Yeah. So I recently spoke to a couple of VCs as well as a professor at Columbia about what happens to hiring at startups now? Like we went through 2021, companies had so much money. A lot of companies have now since said that they overhired. We've seen a lot of layoffs. And it's like, well, where do you go with hiring plans from here? And so chatting with a few different investors, the common thread was just that companies should be prepared to really talk about it when they pitch to investors of what that money will go to. Talk to Angela Lee at Columbia and she mentioned that That was always like the last slide, like, oh, how do you spend the money? And it was always like hiring. And it was like, (laughs) she was like, you didn't spend any time on that slide. It was a total throwaway, like no one cared. But now companies should be prepared to say like what departments they're hiring for and why that aligns with the stage that they're raising at or why it aligns with some of the other milestones they're trying to hit by the next funding round. And they should really be able to sort of talk about why they're hiring those specific people, as well as why they're going to pay those people what they're going to pay them yeah, and why they need to hire a full role as opposed to outsourcing to a financial services company or sort of like a fractional position. I just thought this was really interesting because this is just one of those fun topics that have emerged in the last few months of things where it's like, Technically, startups should have always been doing this. Mm, And now it's like the market's kind of pushing them to be like, okay, let's actually follow the best practices now. Which I mean, hey, better late than never. But yeah, curious what you guys think, especially because you guys have done a lot more of the layoff coverage than I have looking through that lens of sort of how startups might approach hiring now. I mean, I love, sorry, I loved your story, Becca. Uh, Like I thought it was really well done. You talked to people who had actually very interesting things to say, agreed that yes, okay, these are things that companies should have been thinking all along. But in their defense in the craze of 2021 and the funding sprees that were happening, they probably weren't being asked these questions so much by VCs either, right? So like, I think the blame can kind of go both ways there, right? Yes. (laughs) Speaking of blame, that's what I'm thinking about is like, are VCs taking their own advice? And that's like, I know, like kind Mm. of a argument I make all the time, but like I just saw on Andreessen Horowitz's career page, which is like my favorite pastime, like what they're hiring for. And they're hiring for like a partner just to run Tech Week, which no shade. We have an events team. Events are very hard to put on. I just feel like, you know, VCs have been all about these like different services beyond the baseline. And I'm just like, I hope if you're giving this advice, you are taking it yourself Um, Mm -hmm. and telling them more about how you're spending, telling your LPs about how you're spending your money. Don't forget Mm -hmm. that you have VCs too, VCs. (laughs) Sorry, I just like, I get so frustrated. (laughs) Yeah, because I know something else that I thought was kind of interesting is just the fact that, I don't know, that investors like didn't really pay that much attention to it before. Like, if that's like a third of the reason the company's raising money, like, don't you think you'd kind of want to know what that strategy was before writing the check. So kind of surprising. And I definitely think that ties into the whole, there's blame on both sides. Like if you were a VC and you were never asking your portfolio companies this, and then you're going to come back later and be like, oh, you shouldn't have hired that way. It's like, well, you didn't ask them or, you know, guide them in a way that you said you would. And 
So I don't know. This these stories are always interesting. The whole I love now them. people are going to do what they're supposed to do, which VCs can say is really easy. <laughs> oh, I said that before, and it's like I don't know if you did. Totally. Do you guys remember mm. any of like the crazy roles that we saw during the bull cycle? I'm trying to remember. I know. I mean, and this isn't crazy, but like just like chief community officers. I wonder how those roles are going, and like are those being hired for anymore? And like, I mean, yeah, there's probably so many of those executive roles that are no longer a thing. Yeah, I mean, like one of the quotes in your article, Becca, was just, you know, the word that comes to mind is thoughtful, like really just companies in general, whether they be startups or these big tech or whatever, just need to be more thoughtful in hiring and not going crazy. Even even like Apple, we covered or Ron Miller wrote about like they're the only one of the big five that haven't laid off lately. And one of the reasons why is they did not go crazy in hiring over the past few years. So like... I kind of give them credit for that. You know, they they didn't go crazy. So now they're not necessarily being in the headlines for laying off. But in general, like lessons learned for everybody from all that's happened. You know, these are people being impacted. So, and I've said this before, like if you're coming up with these roles, like really think about each one. I mean, and one of the people you interviewed said this too, Becca, it's like, think about it. Can you not do contracting here? Do you Mm -hmm. have to hire a full-time person, right? Like really think it through. It shouldn't just be like, hey, we need to hire like 50 people in this team. That's it. Let's go. You know, it just needs to be more thoughtful, a thoughtful approach. Mm -hmm. And they were saying too, obviously the layoffs have been bad and no one's sort of dancing around that. But for companies that are looking to sort of go out and hire this year, do it really thoughtfully. They have the time to do it and they have the talent that's worth hiring right now. So it's almost kind of like if younger startups or sort of earlier companies that maybe didn't overhire, didn't have the means to, Mm -hmm. thinking about hiring now, it's like they've got a great talent pool to pick from. There's no pressure to hire quickly. And like, it's just going to end up being so much better for these companies in the long run. Yeah, Jackie, our crypto writer, wrote about, she had a great story about crypto recruiters Mm -hmm. and their opportunity they're seeing since there's been so many layoffs. But one of the things in that article I found was interesting. It was like one person said, oh, there's no shortage of great resumes or impressive resumes, but the struggle is just finding like alignment in terms of just, Mm. I think, probably more culturally. So I thought that was that was also interesting that like they're thinking beyond just like how a person looks on paper. And so, yeah, but to that point, there's definitely a lot of opportunity for the startups that are hiring. Yeah. There are more people than ever, right? Um, So you kind of have to wonder, like, the shift in terms of the talent, like, before it felt like the people looking for work had the upper hand, but now it feels like these startups that are hiring, they have a lot of people to choose from. So, you know, that whole dynamic is probably changing as well. I know it always like shifts back and forth before you can even catch up, which makes it super hard. But Mm -hmm. I also think like one kind of wrinkle in that is if you're expensive as a person, like if you are like Mm -hmm. a COO that just got fired, I feel like Becca's piece makes me think that you would maybe not be joining a early stage startup that's like open to hiring right now because it has runway. Like I feel like it's easier to be new and looking for jobs. I mean, generalizations all around than be mm-hmm. an expensive mm-hmm. top executive that maybe was hired at a company that now does not exist or in a like late stage, I think it just like makes me worry. Agreed. Yeah. For sure. No, because I saw, uh, I was chatting with a VC about something else yesterday, but somehow hiring and like the enterprise startup space came up. And she was saying, she was like, no one will like ever get paid this high salaries again. Mm. Like she was like, people getting laid off, people hiring, people are really taking a look at like the compensation packages and maybe if they 
overspent there, which what will that mean for competition and the talent war? I mean, yet to be seen, but I think there'll be a lot of stuff coming out of this trickling out over the year. Yeah, agreed. So many follow-up stories. Let's end on a positive note. And we're going to talk about a recent piece about women's health startups and really just this idea that, yes, women's healthcare tech companies raised less than they did in 2022 compared to 2021, but the sector still did well. And that's a celebration in and of itself. Per Dom's recent piece, according to PitchBook, femtech startups raised around $1.16 billion in 2022, less than the $1.41 billion they raised in 2021. But still way higher than the $496 million they raised in 2020. So, you know, that's still more than double. And also funding in the digital health sector as a whole dropped, I think it was by almost 50%. But femtech's share of digital health as a whole climbed to 13.26% in 2022 compared to 875 in 2021. So that's a lot of positive stuff for this space, a lot of data supporting its growth. Definitely. And I something I thought of too looking at this is that when the market started to turn, like last spring, a lot of was, oh, VCs are going to go back to the familiar and a flight to quality. And quality, of course, is I'm putting air quotes because every VC defines their own version of quality, but it was more of the flight to familiarity. So it's really good to see Femtech, a space that some VCs are still sort of hesitant to even go into to begin with or aren't super comfortable investing in because they don't understand it or more of uh, not taking time to understand it. Yeah. So it's good to see that like in a challenging year, especially one of those kind of categories was able to get a bigger share, like showing that like people aren't going to just like totally flock out of the space because it's a little uncertain, which is definitely really good to see, especially for a category that it has such important implications. Which, like, continuing the theme of me getting upset about things today, I feel like the branding <laughs> of femtech, just, like, I still am frustrated with. And I know there's, yeah. there's ways where it works. Like, I think it works when we're talking about women's health companies, so in this way, it works fine. But I think it's still being used to describe any company that's selling to women. And, like, I don't know, I just feel like labels are so complicated in that way, where, like, they are holding things back. And I think it it others something, Becca, to your point, that like already is othered more. And I just don't want to say that word anymore. And it's just, I, I don't know. know. It's hard. I don't like that word at all either. And I feel like we only still continue to use it because it's the only way we know how to right now categorize companies in this space. But I, I agree. Don't love it either. But this is actually, I mean, this is a topic that you've been covering quite a lot lately, right, Natasha? You've written about, let's see, Maven, Sunfish, Baby List. I mean, yeah, a lot of interesting things going on in the space. I know. I love when, like, I'm not even talking to people on the team, but we, like, end up writing pieces that fit into each other, into a theme. And, like, I only realized it during Equity. So shout out to our amazing production team for putting together right. an awesome script this week. But yeah, this week I wrote about Sunfish, which is like this new startup that's trying to build a financial assistant tool to help people who are pursuing assisted reproduction, whether that's egg freezing, IVF, or surrogacy, and a bunch of other things in between. And I also wrote about an acquisition. Uh, this baby list, baby registry company ended up buying a mindfulness company all about parenthood and expecting called Expectful. So definitely seeing some like some activity there that I think supports that the sector isn't like, I don't know, compared to like ed tech that kind of disappeared. Hopefully more on that next week. But for now, I was very happy to hear about women's health being really active. Yeah, I really liked what's going on at Sunfish. I, I feel like people who've had to go through, who've had fertility struggles, and if you didn't have the the money to fund things like IVF, you were just 
out of luck. And that sucks. So that's not fair. It's like, okay, only the people who can afford it or they're wealthier are able to do what they need to do to try to have kids. I mean, that, that just sucks on so many levels. So like, I love the the concept behind this company wanting to make, make having babies, uh, people who are having struggles to having babies, making that more accessible. So yeah, really love that. Totally. It's like, I think the stat I saw and the, the founder, Angela, told me was like, I think 73% of parents that go through assisted reproduction make over six figures. And it just like, yeah, mm. felt very like separate. And right. there's a bunch of companies in Sunfish's space. So hopefully more to come. But Marianne, I definitely nerded out over like the fintech and health overlap there. Yeah, mm-hmm. I'm seeing so much more of that, but that's a topic for another day, I guess. Yes. Okay, well, we are out of time. That flew by. Thank you both for sitting with me and talking about this. I feel like it was as therapeutic as it's ever been. <laughs> I needed it more than I realized. <laughs> I know. I feel like we should be doing this more often. <laughs> right? I, I agree. It always seriously does put me in a good mood. Um, And yeah, always fun to chat with you guys. And hey, what is that code that you give out, Natasha, every week on annual passes of TC Plus? Yes, yes. Get 50% off. I think it's our best deal we have. It's use code equity. Super simple. You can read Rebecca's piece that we talked about. You can read Dom's piece on women's health startups. There's so much more that lives behind the paywall. Some of our best stuff. So you should totally subscribe. And yeah, that is a wrap. Follow us on Twitter at EquityPod. We will chat with you next week. Bye. Bye. Equity Fridays are hosted by myself, TechCrunch senior reporter, Natasha Mascarenas, TechCrunch senior reporter, Becca Skutak, and TechCrunch senior reporter, Marianne Azevedo. We're produced by Teresa Locansolo with editing by Kel Keller. Bryce Durbin is our illustrator. Alyssa Stringer leads audience development and Henry Picovet manages TechCrunch audio products. Thanks so much for listening and we'll be back next week.